0: That was a little, a little nod to the, the old school fans with our original theme. Well, I don't know if that was our original, our original theme song that was not a copyright violation. <laughs> How's that for, quote unquote, our original song? I think we're going to finish off Model Land today. How's that sound for a plan? Um, I can't remember if we left off at the Diabolical Divide. Um, but I think that's where we left off, on this page. I marked the page, and then, uh, didn't necessarily do a good job indicating to myself where. So, uh, we're gonna, we're just gonna go for it. Uh, Interlude, The Diabolical Divide. The travelers are miserable. Creamy takes the fuck over. She apparently knows some kind of swamp monster whose body is made out of musical instruments. Mm-hmm. Quote, sideways-turned symbols for teeth. The monster eats someone because Creamy is crazy as hell, and it's pretty clear at this point that Creamy knows an awful lot about the Diabolical Divide, but we aren't being told what, why, or how. This whole business with Creamy and the Diabolical Divide has all the trademarks of any good Modeland mystery. It's confusing. I'm not sure what we're supposed to think, and fuck you, it's Modeland. Night Fever. We rejoin our models in the night, and Zarpessa has a night terror thingy. She's digging in imaginary dumpsters, and Tookie has the chance, once again, at the behest of a doctor, to reveal anything she knows about Zarpessa. She almost does, but then she remembers CL's words. The girl who is sucking your blood is hurting way more than you. So she keeps quiet yet again. Even though we now suspect CL is a murderous crazy person, her words still hold sway, somehow. Would it change how we felt about a big speech? Like if we found out that Abraham Lincoln was tripping balls or something? If the great words come from someone insane, does that matter? Take this quote. I use emotion for the many and reserve reason for the few. That's a Hitler quote right there. It almost sounds nice, I think, but then you know who it's from and you're like, Oh, I think he means something way different than what I first guessed. Maybe if Abraham Lincoln was tripping balls, they should just put an asterisk next to the speech's title or something. Anyway, that boring and pointless Zarpessa interlude leads into our next encounter with Bravo, who is also the second major Modeland character who explains to us how it's difficult to be really beautiful. Yeah, this is a Modeland thing. Bravo tells Tookie his story. Well, he pretends it's not his story. He says, let me tell you a story about a boy named Deco, And then he proceeds to tell us a story about a super handsome boy who really likes architecture, handsomeness, and love of architecture being the two things we know about Bravo at this point. Why he tells the story this way, I do not know. The story is like this. Once there was a boy named Deco, and he loved architecture a whole lot. And he wanted to learn everything about architecture and to be an architect. But there was a problem. He was just so damn good looking. Yes, people swooned. Grown women would want to marry him when he was just a young boy. Things were so out of control that a symphony conductor saw Deco in the crowd one day, and Deco's face was so handsome that the conductor decided to create and perform a symphony for Deco's face. Just his face. And Deco had to stand on stage the whole time, but it was worthwhile because the concert hall was a rad building and Deco likes architecture. As Deco grew, so did his interest in architecture, but he found that no one took him seriously or they took him kinda seriously, but when they saw his face, they didn't want to ask about his buildings or designs, they just swooned. Meanwhile, two of Deco's heroes, both architects, attempted to hike the Diabolical Divide in order to get to Model Land and see its unusual architecture. They didn't make it, but Deco, inspired by his heroes, decided to make his way to Model Land the only way he knew how, by being really hot and going to bestosterone. By the way, Not really sure if the bestosterone guys are selected or just show up or what. Would have been a good time to find that out, but here we are. And that boy, Deco, is the man you see before you today, Bravo. I'm Bravo, but I'm also Deco. Do you understand? Can I make this more obvious? Okay, okay, I'm sure I said something like this before, but it bears repeating. It is possible to write a book about how it's really hard to be attractive, about how being attractive means you don't get to be heard the same way as the rest of us normals. I think it's technically, philosophically possible to write something that would make a character sympathetic because they are too hot. I'm racking my brains to think of something that's done this, but I don't know. What I do know is that Model Land is not the right book to do it. While I can see, like Celebrity, super-hotness would be a burden at times, I think you have to consider that, like Celebrity, it's certainly got some distinct advantages— And it's hard to convince anyone that good looks are worse than bad ones. I can see how the stares and overtures would be obnoxious, but I'm not really buying the idea that Bravo was too hot to be an architect. I went to the offices and they thought I was so hot they just wanted to talk about how hot I was. Come on, that's dumb. Because seriously, when they do that thing on the news where they uglify themselves and see what it's like, they never do it the other way, get super pretty and then be like, wow, it's so hard to be attractive. I'll never be attractive again. I'm going to go home and fill a sleeping bag with pepperonis and just stay in there until I'm oily and pimply for life. Bravo doesn't get to be an architect the way he would like, and that's his tragedy. But I think a lot of us don't get to do what we want, and we can't blame our super-hotness for our failures. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. No one is going to cry for you when you say you were held back in life by hotness. Everyone is held back by something whether it be money or geography or missing a leg. We've all missed out on jobs because we were underqualified or gave a shitty interview. I think that would be a lot easier to take if I genuinely thought, and it seemed genuinely true, that I couldn't get gigs because I was so fuckable. I'm prepared to declare being too hot a non-problem. It's like if I decided I'm just too good at giving oral, and it's a problem because people are constantly calling me begging me to have sex with them. Wow, what a terrible life. So that's Bravo's tragic backstory. Too hot to exist in the regular world. Up to this point, the book really got across that Bravo was good-looking, but it's only now that I realize that he's so damn brave. At the story's climax, Tookie and Bravo almost kiss again, and Bravo talks about how he sees Tookie's inner beauty, even though they've barely spoken, and then Bravo reveals that there's a zip-zap hidden in the stadium. The Unicas can make an escape. He's going to show it to Tookie, take her out of model land so they can kiss and express their love, but it can't happen right away because, you know, someone comes in to interrupt everything because, say it with me, fuck you, it's model land. Oh, also, real quick, Tookie hesitates to kiss Bravo because she, quote, promised herself to Theophilus. Remember that dude we haven't seen since, like, the first ten pages of this motherfucker? I completely forgot that guy existed. But I guess Tookie was planning to kiss Theo, bang him, marry him, and then they could have babies together, and together they could concoct the absolute most unholy names a child has ever been burdened with. Diabolical Divide Interlude Creamy and Miracle fight a monster that's a giant spider with a hundred human legs, the monster is defeated by the power of dance, and then fireballs rocket through a graveyard and incinerate a couple people. Back to Modeland. What? The diabolical divide seemed a bit rushed? Like there was some stuff missing? Welcome to my world, fuckers. We find out that Tookie is going to be a contestant in something called Man Attack, where models go up against boys from Bestosterone for some reason, in some activity, in an egg-shaped stadium. And who is she matched with? Bravo. Doi. Today is filled with some true W.T. fuck moments. Today is all about Man Attack. As far as I can tell, Man Attack is Model Land's Quidditch. Quidditch was always my least favorite part of Harry Potter books. For one, it was always the clumsiest part. Sigh, Potter, you've forgotten again. You need to stop living with muggles. Listen up, Quidditch goes like this. Come on, just put a rule book in the back or something. It's a made-up sport. I don't even care about real sports, let alone the made-up ones. Also, there's a team called the Quaffle Punchers. Come on. Come on. I never liked how Quidditch seemed like it was important, even though these students-slash-kids were magicking for their fucking lives. If I went to a high school where the faculty murdered my parents, and one time there was a murderous troll in the bathroom instead of just a scary drug dealers, I don't think I would have given a fuck about football. I didn't give a fuck about football as it stood already. So if there was actually something better to do, all the more not giving a fuck. Who gives a flying broomstick up the ass about sports when your classes involve shooting magic laser wand shit at people? You can fucking fly. And the best thing you can think of to do is play flying football? And finally, the snitch. That never made sense. If you get that, the game is just over and you win? There must be a thousand million internet articles about what a dumb thing that is, so I won't belabor the point. I just want to say that I think Quidditch is probably the weakest aspect of Harry Potter and something I don't care for, and I want to say that to express my surprise that Model Land finds a way to do it much worse. Now here's what Man Attack is, best I can decipher. This is a struggle, so don't be a dick about it. I'm confused too. If there's one thing Tyra's bad at, it's description of objects and people, and if there's another thing, it's drawing a word picture that sets up where those objects and people are in space, and if there's another thing, it's describing action. Man Attack involves all of these skills, so here we go. In a stadium, a boy from Bestosterone and a girl from Modeline stand on opposite sides of a plank. I'm not entirely sure how wide the plank is, nor how long. A buzzer sounds, and the boy and the girl run towards each other and try to push each other off the plank. You can shove someone or trick them by kissing them and surprising them or whatever. There's some kind of anti-gravity that hurls someone back onto the plank if they fall, but falling costs points. After some indeterminable interval of time on the plank, clothing comes shooting out of these holes that are somewhere, and the competitors have to assemble the best outfit based on some kind of theme they're given at some point, also not really clear. I think they're also still on the plank, but I don't know. Then the makeup portion. Red and blue balls appear out of thin air. The red balls are girl makeup, the blue one's boy makeup. The contestants touch their balls, and rub stuff on their faces, but you have to be quick about it because once you touch a ball, it's set to explode. You have to put on makeup to score points, and then if your opponent smears you with the contents of a ball, you lose points. Finally, the pair takes a photo together and whoever dominates the photo wins points. At the end of this competition, scores, which seem so fucking arbitrary that they rival Conan's video game scores, are given. Uh, here I have a quick breakdown of Conan's system for one rating. It was a 44-star system, 35 stars being great, 11 not so good, 2 is really good, 1 horrible. Three girls go up against three boys separately, and of course the main event is Tookie versus Bravo. Just before the battle, we have relationship drama, For Your Mama. Tookie reveals to Bravo that she and the Unicas are planning to escape through the Zip Zap. And Bravo gets pissed because he thought Tookie wanted to go with him through the zip-zap so they could make out, but it turns out she just wants to escape because she can't say why. And that's why so many fictional romances are fucking stupid. There is no reason Tookie can't just say, because CL is going to murder and torture us, I can't explain how I know, but I know, and if we don't leave now we will be killed... And I'm into you because you're hot and nice, and you're the only one who is addicted to Zarpessa, which is desperately needed at all times, but I can't stay because I'll die horribly. I guess there's one thing preventing her from saying that, which is that she'd have to say CL aloud, which might be impossible with that godforsaken till that I'm still not over. And if Tookie could say all that stuff, then Bravo could easily say, Oh totally, I mean I'm disappointed you'll be leaving, but hell, you can't stay and get killed. Done and done. But instead, we can't tell Bravo why we're doing the thing that's absolutely forbidden just that we're doing it. It's like Meet the Parents. I feel like every joke in that movie is something like Ben Stiller is combing his hair, then he drops the comb, and the dog picks it up, and then he chases the dog and tries to get the comb, and then right then De Niro walks in and looks like Ben Stiller is fucking the dog. And De Niro gets all disgusted and acts like Ben Stiller's a jerk or something. But if there was any reality, what would happen in the following 10 seconds would be that De Niro would see Ben Stiller clearly isn't fucking the dog. He's got his pants on, he's not erect, and the asshole dog stole his comb, and that's it. But we cut that stuff because it wouldn't be hilarious if it was in there, and by that I mean a modicum of reality. These types of setups don't really work. They don't, because they're predicated on the idea that reality stops and starts based on what the viewer is seeing. Is it possible that the makers of these films are making a profound philosophical point about perception and reality, a really complex version of the tree falling in a woods question? No, it's not possible. It's just stupid. And so many fictional romances work this way, too. Scene I see my girlfriend with her ex, and I see what I think is them making out, but really it's not my girlfriend, or not her ex, or there's a really solid explanation for what's going on, and if the movie allowed for a 30 second conversation, all would be good. But that's not dramatic. So instead, we have a flimsy, invented problem, and just make sure that no one is willing to talk about it, and then we have a tumultuous romance, and then we have Twilight. Yes, this is how Twilight happens. I blame creators of the stupid trope for Twilight. Alright, so everything and everyone is dumb, and then Bravo's pissed, so he tells Tookie that getting her to love him was just a bet, which is total bullshit and the most obvious lie in the book yet, and also a really fucking stupid movie thing they do. Once, just once, I want someone to make the rom-com where the quarterback makes a bet that he can make anyone prom queen, and his buddies are like, alright, Stinky, and then it turns out that Stinky really is awful inside and out. Like, I don't know, she's really into white power or something. Seriously, what the fuck is wrong with the guys in these movies who make the bets? Why would you try and... Who would you... Who should you try and make hot? How about Rachel Lee Cook over there? (laughs) Haha, good luck. Do these dudes have eyes? Do they own eyeballs? Are the eyeballs hooked up to anything inside the skull? What the fuck? So instead of being excited to engage in friendly competition, Bravo and Tookie are pissed at each other and they enter the man attack. The competition begins with Tookie clotheslining Bravo off the plank somehow. We've read dozens of pages about his rippling muscles and her inability to gain a single pound, but fine, whatever. Tookie is just fueled by the rage of being a bet and being used, even though she was totally using Bravo too, but whatever. No time for thinking. The Manatea countdown has already begun. The countdown from Z to A that happens during each portion because that's probably the worst way ever conceived to count down a thing. Then there's the part where wardrobe comes shooting out from everywhere. Tookie almost gets knocked off the plank, but Bravo saves her, and for his troubles he gets a full-on punch to the face. And then the makeup phase, during which Tookie describes what her first kiss will be like in order to make Bravo jealous. Buckle up, fuckers. I'm going to be under a perfect sunset, near a garden of golden flowers spreading as far as the eye can see. The lucky guy who will get to pucker with my suckers will be wearing a tuxedo, and he's going to sing to me a song he wrote, and he'll dance to it. It needs to make me laugh and make me cry. Then he will open up his shirt like a superhero. On his chest will be written, Tookie, you are the most amazing girl I have ever laid eyes on, and I can't decide which I love more, your green or your brown eye. Then he'll have to touch my face gently with both hands, and he'll kiss my forehead, both of my cheeks, and then my nose, Then he'll spray whipped cream straight into my mouth, and then his. And then he'll part his mouth just a little and press his lips against mine. And for me, it will feel like the kiss will never end, because it won't. It will go on forever, and it will be amazing. There's so, so much here. And I want to pick and choose just the very best. I can't decide which I love more, your green or your brown eye. Okay. You're still looking for your first kiss. Save the butt stuff for the pros. Then he'll spray whipped cream into my mouth. There's absolutely nothing to say in regards to that line that you, reader, haven't thought already. After Tookie's fugue, Bravo feels like shit, says he made up the bet thing. I nearly fell out of my fucking chair in disbelief. This model land, more twists and turns than a goddamn Twizzler pull and peel... Caught in that rotating brush on the Roomba Not my most relatable analogy But trust me, apt As hell Tookie screams that she loves Theophilus Which is Arpessa hears and is pissed about And Bravo gets pissed all over again Because he's like, wait, you got a dude at home? What the fuck? Dude at home? They're trapped in a modeling-themed prison camp This is like meeting someone in Auschwitz And being like, oh, you made out with a dude back in Poland? Well, fuck you then Hashtag schwitz. Okay, there's a little more Bravo feels like shit So he tells Tookie that she'll win man attack If she lets him hold the activated makeup ball bomb thingies Tookie picks one up to activate it And it's a Smize Remember that little thing that was a jewel With an LED display flag That came through the water pipes At the beginning of the book Okay, I guess somehow a makeup ball can be a Smize too And Tookie activates it I guess a smise can be anything, can show up anywhere, and has different effects depending on where it is and what's happening and whatever. Fuck it, it's the literal most distilled representation of dex De machina ever committed to paper. The description of the smise's effect here is not great, but Tuki feels like she's a bright light in a dim room, and she hears thousands of words run through her head. So I'm 90% sure a smise is crank or possibly some version of Four Loco. The makeup ball blows up on Bravo and Tookie takes a better picture because she's either holding a smize or is tripping balls. Tookie wins the man attack and is the new champion. And I swear to all that is holy, I did not know this when I started reading slash writing today, but man attack is Quidditch and there's a snitch and it's a smize. What a wondrous journey we're on together. Just then, the escape plan begins. Dylan pretends to faint for some reason, and all the lights go out. It's time. The plan is hatched. Dylan pretends to faint, and one of my favorite parts, someone screams something like, That fat chick fainted. Oh, Modeland, land, sometimes you're just the living end. The lights in the entire stadium turn out, and while everyone panics because holy fuck, it's dark, the Unicas make their way into the depths of the stadium to find the zip-zap. The bestosteros brilliantly hid the zip-zap located in the bowels of a state-of-the-art stadium by burying it in a bunch of rocks. I've been giving Tookie and her friends a lot of shit for being stupid, but I guess it didn't really occur to me that, although they're dumb, the baseline for dumb in model land is so low. This is the book that hides a thing under a pile of rocks inside a stadium. If you want to hide a zip-zap in the floor, just put it, I don't know, a fake floor over it? Or a piece of furniture? Putting a pile of rubble on top of it, that's too obvious, Not to mention that a goddamn janitor is going to find it just by doing his job. This is like stashing a house key in a fake rock that you then balance on top of the mailbox. No, it's worse. This is like hiding a $20 bill, which you really need, underneath a donut in the break room at my work. The girls find the zip-zap, which you may remember as being basically a portal, but also a zipper. This zip-zap is different. Its sides are red-hot, and the zipper pull is glowing red. Tookie touches it. I guess you have to unzip zap a zip zap, but come on, use your fucking brains and get an oven mitt or something. This is like one of the first things we learn, we don't touch hot. The girls jump in, even though it looks like the zip zap is filled with boiling blood or something, and they're in some kind of long dark slide, hoping to end up in Ladorno instead of the Diabolical Divide. The word is, they've got a 50-50 shot. Now up to this point, I figured the Zip Zap was pretty much instant, but in this case the girls are in a sort of slide and they have to make a choice of going left or right. They go right and they end up in the Diabolical Divide. But no problem, they jump back in the Zip Zap before random fireballs can incinerate them, and this time they end up in the city of Ladorno. So when they were saying that there was a 50% chance they'd end up in the Diabolical Divide, What they really meant was that there was a 50% chance of then ending up in the diabolical divide briefly, and they'd have to turn around, get back in the zip-zap, and go the other way. When there was a 50% chance of something bad happening, it was a 50% chance of minor inconvenience. It's like booking standby tickets and someone says, there's about a 50-50 chance you'll get on this flight. But if you don't get on the flight, you just get on a different one later. You don't then remain stuck in the airport or just have to go wherever the next plane is going, be it Detroit or Beirut. It's an inconvenience, but let's not get crazy. But anyway, we all come flying out of the Zip Zap in Ladorno, finally safe. By the way, this is a, a, just oral aside, I just want to remind everyone that originally the Unicas were planning to just walk through the diabolical divide because the Zip Zap was a 50-50 chance, um, making this even dumber. At this point, the girls all discuss what to do next now that they've escaped model land. They all independently decide that they're going back to their awful, shitty lives in their homes. Why they decide this, I'm not sure. I would think, I don't know, they could do something? Stick together? Get an apartment? Not just slump back to working in a country that's literally a giant department store? Not go live with parents who don't seem opposed to prolicide as a concept? By the way, there are a bunch of fun sides out there I didn't know about. Avunculide, killing your uncle. Does that happen enough to be its own thing? Omnicide, the act of killing all humans. Giganticide, the act of killing a giant, aka heroism. But enough asides. Just then, CL appears in the sky with, yes, her giant gossamer ball sack. It's back. And she's going to collect the girls and take them back to Model Land. The girls make a run for it. Here's the entirety of the chase, for your pleasure. The girls screamed and clambered out of the fountain, running down an alley, ducking under fire escapes and around garbage containers and climbing over fences, CL's pouch in pursuit. They skidded to a stop at an open manhole cover. They scooted down the ladder and ran through a labyrinth of dark, steaming tunnels. And that's how we do a getaway. One run through a New York alleyway... Don't forget to dodge the guys moving a giant pane of glass across the street. They should really park on whatever side of the street they need to be on rather than carrying glass sheets across. And look out, that fruit vendor's cart is ripe for the tipping. Whoa. Okay, okay. They go into the sewers, then back up top, through an alley, knock over some dumpsters, and then they find themselves at the exact spot where CL selected Tookie to go to Model Land. Tookie takes a moment to stand around and reflect during this fleeing for her life when out from behind a garbage can comes Lizzie. Yes, faithful readers will remember Lizzie as Tookie's multiple personality friend who delicately, horribly, handled the issue of cutting in a thoughtful, no, reasonable, no, not outrageous manner she sees a sharpish rock and can't help herself and picks it up to cut herself with. Tookie and Lizzie hug, and they do their insane secret handshake, which involves pointing up, smelling their armpits, then a curtsy, then the phrase, What's up, Hot Queen? It turns <laughs> it turns out Lizzie has been hiding out in a trash can, Oscar the Grouch style, and waiting for Tookie to come back, and she's already forgiven Tookie for leaving because she knew Tookie would come back. Then Lizzie freaks out about something that's happening in her mind and runs away. Tookie chases her, but alas, can't match the speed of a homeless malnourished girl who is probably experiencing significant blood loss if her desire to cut is any indication. Then, CL shows up, but the other Unicas also burst onto the scene in a bus. The group tries to escape in a bus, the ideal escape vehicle. Also, the bus driver seems really cool with flooring it down a bunch of alleys in order to make an escape. Maybe it's his last day and he's always wanted to be involved in a speed scenario. The bus even drives by Lizzie, who stares at something shiny on the ground, then picks it up and uses it to cut herself. No, Tookie wailed. (laughs) Oh, Lizzie, can't you stop picking up every shiny thing you see and cutting yourself with it, you silly goose? Then the bus almost hits some dude, the driver slams on the brakes and everyone smashes into the front windshield. Smash cut tonight. All the girls wake up. And outside the bus is CL, who has resumed whipping herself bloody again, the same way she did when Tookie found her that fateful night, whenever the fuck that was. CL screams a bunch of nonsensical shit about how she could have saved someone, something about three people who are dead or maybe not dead or something, and how it's all her fault. Then this. Tookie stared at the Intoxabella. All at once, everything she'd assumed about CL flipped upside down. She still wasn't sure what was tormenting the Intoxabella, but one thing was certain, CL was not guilty of murder. The guilt she felt right now was over something far more abstract, something more like bereavement and failure. So after thinking CL was evil for pretty much no reason, now we're back to thinking she's good, also pretty much for no reason. And of course, that mystery simmers for less than a page before CL explains what happened and removes all doubt. This is as much sense as I can make of what happened with CL, and I call this story The Ballad of Seal. That way I don't have to type a tilde just for this once. CL became a supermodel, and she had these three friends from back home who looked an awful lot like the Unicas, Piper, Dylan, and Shiraz. Once CL was a model, she brought her friends to live in the city in her fabulous penthouse with her, and they were happy, but then one day her friends were gone. For whatever reason, CL figured her friends were in the Diabolical Divide, so she went there to find them. She found two of their buried corpses, and she found the other one, I guess, somehow. She never says how she found the third one, but I guess she did. Ciel was planning to parade the corpses through the streets of Ladorno to show how evil Mata Land was, but someone from Mata Land got wind of the plan, so, and this is where it gets extra confusing, all CL could do was bury her friends under... Th- these three obelisks which I think CL made but I'm not sure. And then CL reveals that none of the Unicas were on the list for her to pick up on T-Dod except Tookie that is. And when CL saw how weird looking Tookie was she figured it was her chance to pick other weirdos like the friends she lost. This was her experiment that Tookie overheard her talking about and assumed was an experiment that involved dissecting and whatnot. Yes, words are hard, and sometimes a thing like experiment, though ominous sounding, really does just mean what it says, a test to find out whether or not something is true. And perhaps next time we won't run off assuming we're going to be killed when really the experiment in question is about as dangerous and subversive as the time I mixed bugles and Doritos in the same bowl. CL's brave experiment is to bring together these four girls who defy the normal expectations of what a model is And she explains this to them, that they are better than all the models who are conformed to the traditional standards of beauty. By the way, I don't think we've even talked about this part yet, but why is it that in this book most attractive people are inherently bad? That's the opposite side of the coin that says all ugly people are good, and it's some kind of weird four-sided coin that has the ones about ugly equals bad and pretty equals good. It's not really defying a stereotype to show that the opposite is true. It's kind of reaffirming the stereotype, but we were just incorrect about which groups were in which categories. I'm having trouble saying this right, but what I mean is if we assume all one type of person is smart and they go in the smart bucket, and all one type of person is dumb and they go in the dumb bucket, it's not doing us much good to keep those same buckets and just switch the contents of each bucket without sifting and sorting. It's still saying that all people X are this certain way, Modeland is still saying that beauty, whether it's present or not, is the determining factor for personality as well. Anyway, the girls are given an ego boost by CL, and they step back inside her gossamer ball sack to head back to Modeland before anyone notices they were gone. So, the purpose of this little jaunt was to check in with Lizzie, forget about her entirely again, then find out what the real deal with CL was, which, as in most parts of this book, could have just come through a conversation where CL explained all this stuff. finished, my god are we getting close to what is sure to be a rousing conclusion. I'm now 90% through this book, and in this last section, shit gets really, really real. It all begins with one of Tyra's patented narrator sections. The ones you can tell are being read by a narrator because the text is in italics and the narrative thread is even more difficult -er to follow. Oh, and she says darling a lot, which makes the narrator sound like a vampire to me. Quote, Oh my poor dear darling, you thought it was over, didn't you? I didn't really think that, but it's a prescient assessment of my hopes. Rather than even discuss this section, which does absolutely nothing other than specifying that exactly... 43,347 people are led into Modeland Stadium for the 7-7 tournament, I'd rather just say that I had a great idea about a vampire movie. The vampire, Count Dracula. The tagline, count on the count. The rest, Hollywood magic. Okay, fine. We land back in Modeland after our second ride in the Gossamer Ball Sack, an item that really has paid off a lot more than I thought it would, and the girls race towards the stadium to see the 7-7 tournament on time. I wish I'd been doing something all along, pulling a favorite line or descriptor from each chapter, but I haven't been, so this one might seem out of place, but fuck you, it's Model Land. My favorite line. They raced past the Belladonna statues as fast as they could. In the distance, Tookie heard the sounds of drums beating, people cheering, and a non-specific frenzied rumble of activity. A what? Non-specific frenzied rumble of activity? Just one of your classic, non-specific, frenzied rumbles. You know the type. I've always valued specificity in writing. That's the word I would use, specificity. It's just amazing that this late in the book, Tyra has managed to so acutely, so amazingly bullseye the exact opposite of everything I've ever wanted to read on a page. Okay, what happens next is a whole bunch of bullshit, and what I'm going to do is sum it up. And trust me, I'm doing you a big fucking favor here, because what happens is a bunch of revelations that we're not supposed to understand until the sentence that completes each reveal, but the reveals come like 10 pages after you already know what's happening, and you're going crazy watching Tookie puzzle it out. Things get so convoluted that at one point Tookie passes out, thinks it's all been a dream, and then wakes up and is like, oh, that dream was all a dream, and now I'm in reality. It's all confusing, but I'll try. Here's what happens. Creamy and Miracle scale the wall and fall into Model Land. Everyone is pretty surprised by this, including Tookie, and then Creamy demands that the Belladonna see her and Miracle, which the Belladonna does because in Model Land, when someone demands something, you either agree to do it or there is some crazy plot reason that forces you to. Motivation is not something these characters have in any form. We have a long, drawn-out argument where Creamy says she'll reveal the Belladonna's secret if she doesn't let Miracle into Model Land. This goes back and forth for an unbelievably long time without actually telling us anything because I guess that's what Modeland Dramatic Tension is about. Briefly, think about Hitchcock's instructive story about dramatic tension and putting a bomb under the table. If you're going to do a story about a couple eating breakfast who gets blown up by a bomb, Hitchcock will say you have to show the bomb go under the table so we viewers know that the explosion is going to happen. That's tension and suspense. So in this scene we have something under the table which will do something we can't determine and this something goes under the table and we talk about how it's going to explode for about 400 years and it never does. In the midst of the argument between the Belladonna and Creamy which mostly involves someone saying something and the Belladonna shouting silence Tookie runs to that weird thing in the spa where the Oracle ladies can show you your memories. Remember that? It's okay if you don't, it doesn't matter. Just picture those weirdos from the Tom Cruise movie where they told the future with skee balls. Everyone follows Tookie for no reason, and then we've got Tookie, Creamy, and the Belladonna, and Persimmon all in the memory time machine thingy. Oh persimmon is basically the Belladonna's slave, a manicant, which is a mannequin thing that failed Model Land candidates that failed Model Land candidates become. Okay, we flash back, and in a series of scenes that take Tookie a painfully long time to reconcile and puzzle out, we discover that Creamy was once a model Land candidate, and her best friends were Belladonna and Persimmon. They're all so happy together until Belladonna carries on an affair with an outsider who Creamy also tries to bang for some reason. Now, we're supposed to think that this outsider is Tookie's father, Chris Creamcrabat because the character is shown being graceful in weird ways and manages to walk a balance beam for no reason, but it's not. Tyra goes to great lengths to make us think it's Chris, which is a little unfair because fuck, we only know what you tell us, Tyra, and if the one thing we know about young Chris is that he was an acrobat, then you show us a young man who's an acrobat, I'll draw the line. The young man is not Chris, he's Wingtip. The magical black hobo we saw like two times before this and just happened to live in Tookie's hometown. Again, if this were a book with any description, wouldn't Tookie recognize that the man in this memory was not her father right away? I might not recognize a berserk magical black hobo right away, might not be able to place him, but I'm pretty damn sure I'd recognize my own father. It turns out Belladonna got knocked up, delivered the baby in in secret in a bathroom stall, and Persimmon and Creamy find her. The Belladonna's mom, the original Belladonna, finds the scene, punishes Persimmon by making her a mannequin for some reason, makes the baby and the man leave, and then nothing happens to Creamy and the Belladonna because eh, we punished Persimmon who did nothing and that seems adequate. Fast forward a few months, Belladonna can't stand not seeing her baby, so she convinces Creamy to jump the Modeland wall with her. Yes, they age 50 years by doing so but Belladonna is so sure she can undo the aging because, after all, she's royalty. They cross the diabolical divide and visit the baby daddy. Belladonna goes out for baby formula and Creamy basically attacks wingtip, pinning him down to try and have sex with him. Tip, ladies. If you're trying to force a man to have sex with you, kneeing him in the groin is not one of the best ways to bend him to your sexual will. That's like trying to jumpstart a car by smashing in the engine with a hammer. Of course, B- Belladonna walks in right then. Cream- Creamy claims Wingtip was trying to bone her, and the Modeland police rush in and take the two girls back to Modeland. The original Belladonna, Belladonna Mama, then gives her daughter a choice: she can stay in Modeland, have her beauty restored, and be famous and in charge, or she can be with her baby, remain old, and so on. Belladonna stays. Creamy is pissed because the Belladonna Mama doesn't de-age her so Creamy tells the Belladonna that she is the one who tried to bang Wingtip. Anyway, then we cut to Wingtip and we find out the baby he's got is none other than CL. Recap CL is the Belladonna's baby with a magical black man hobo. Creamy has been to Model Land and through the Diabolical Divide before. Tookie is, so far, not really involved in any of this in any way. What will happen in the last 10% of this book, it's anyone's fucking guess at this point. Okay, there's one other thing we need to do here. As part of this exhaustive review, I promised I would give a couple people their very own Model Land names, and with the revelation in this section that Creamy's real name is Cremalata Defa Cake, yep, I feel like it's time. Jamie, thanks for your contribution. You're a handsome fellow with a Hawaiian flavor, and you're a deep thinker. Your Modeland name Poitin Alaway Naea. Alan, thanks for your contribution. You're a young fellow with a deep voice and a blonde beard. Kind of Viking-y, but with brains. Your are model land named Alma Matter Alma Beard Heart. Silence! Today I finished fucking model land. A saga that began on May 28th, the year of our Lord, 2012. Let's finish up the plot on this mother and then bury it all deep with our brains, only to return again when I'm demented and in a nursing home, muttering shit about Chris Creamcobat and the like. We last left our, I want to say heroes, but let's just call them people we're following. We last left our people we're following when it was revealed that they all know each other from back when. Sort of like how X-Men comics, it was always like, let's introduce a new character, we'll make him Cyclops' brother, or his dad who lives in space. Cyclops, meet your space dad. Everyone knows each other and then the conflict between Creamy and the Belladonna gets physical until a spike on the Belladonna's dress skewers Creamy. Bitch goes down and the Modeland police bust in and arrest the Belladonna or Modeland arrest her I guess. Molest, no, let's just stick with arrest. By the way, the Modeland police heretofore are not seen, bust in and move the action along about four times in the last 50 pages or so. Where the fuck have they been this whole time? I wish we'd known about them earlier because, damn, they really move shit along. They really are the plot police, busting in whenever things are moving slowly and it's time to pick up the pace. Alright, move along. Nothing to see here. Seriously, there's nothing to see here. Let's move along to where stuff happens. For nearly killing Creamy, the belladonna is thrown in the ugly room, a room covered in mirrors that reflect the ugliest version of yourself. Cl visits the Belladonna, her mother, in the ugly room and does the whole, why did you give me up, why? The Belladonna is basically like, I had to. Cl accepts that, they embrace, and then we have what has to be one of the stupidest reveals in the entire book. I know I've said buckle up before, get ready for some stupid shit, but seriously, strap yourself into a gossamer ball sack, fill it with a shock absorbing fluid of your choosing and hold your breath cause here we go. Here's what Belladonna says to Cl. When I had you, I looked into your gray eyes and the first thing I said was, I see love. And CL, every time I see you, even right now, I see love. That's how I named you. CL. See love. I don't know if this was made up by Tyra at the end or planned all along, and I can't decide which is worse. Then the Model Land police drag CL out of the room to be executed because, say it with me, fuck you, it's Modeland. Really I'm not sure why she's being executed Which is fine because they put her in a guillotine Drop the blade and right before it hits The blade stops and everyone applauds CLs For becoming the new Belladonna Why they made the announcement this way I do not know It would be like becoming president and the first thing that happens Is you're kidnapped, thrown in a van with a bag over your head They threaten you, make you beg for your life And then pull the bag off your head And the kidnappers are like JK, you're president, awesome job I'm sure there are no hard feelings for the way In which we've chosen to announce this And that's pretty much the end of the book. Tookie and Ciel go flying around, ready for their next adventure. The book doesn't even do it the way it should, but let me do like an animal house thing and wrap up all the characters. The Unicas. Dylan, Piper, and Shiraz. No fucking idea. No mention of them. They seem to vanish near the end. Don't know. Don't care. Let's say they're hot werewolves now. Seems reasonable. Creamy. On life support in model land in a room right next to the ugly room somehow I swear to fuck Modeland is like the movie cube Where different things must be constantly moving around and changing locations Because whenever something needs to be near something else It's like one door away Dookie tries to reconcile with her mom the way CL did But her mom is unconscious so that doesn't really work Miracle Turned into a cat in the evil hall of cats or whatever Bravo. Oh, I forgot about the reconciliation with Bravo. Bravo, who Tookie is still super pissed at for no reason at all, makes up for whatever the perceived slight might be by recreating Tookie's insane idea for a first kiss. He writes her a message on some dude's chests, singing her a terrible song, shoots whipped cream in her mouth and his, and then they kiss. In the course of this elaborate kiss, the Pee Wee's breakfast machine of kisses. Bravo slips Tookie the tongue, and she stops and is like, whoa, not that kind of kissing. Fuck you, Modeland. okay? You make us wait to see this kiss for over 500 pages, and when it comes, the dude goes for some tongue action, and it's like, that's taking it a bit far, don't you think? I'm not going to take the stance that Tookie owes Bravo anything, but this kiss forces us through nine pages of setup before lips touch. This has been the unsexiest book about modeling I can imagine, and we get one sliver of Bravo's sweet, muscular tongue, it's rejected outright. For some reason, the slip of the tongue feels less like a romantic boundary has been crossed. More like, imagine you're dating someone, and you play hooky from work to clean your shared apartment top to bottom, and when your partner comes home, first thing, she's like, oh, I hope you didn't use up all the cleaning supplies. It's like, can this dude do anything right for you, Tookie? Anyway, if you recall, Bravo told Tookie a story about a boy named Decca, which was really Bravo's story in disguise. Here at the end, Tookie tells the story of Tookalada to Bravo, and we get a recap of the entirety of fucking Model Land in the final pages of the book. It's like a book written as a five-paragraph essay, and you have to make that page count, so you just put in a bunch of, Remember that stuff I told you? I'll tell you again, just to make sure... Also, Bravo was there for like 90% of what Tookie is talking about. Zarpessa You might think that after Tookie guarded Zarpessa's secret that we'd see some growth, especially after Tookie says that she's not at all interested in Zarpessa's boyfriend, Theophilus Lovelace's. Zarpessa admits that Tookie did a good job keeping her secret, and then she calls her an unfortunate-looking, big-headed, crazy-eyed, forgettable bitch for her trouble. Then Zarpessa walks away. Cool, dunsies. Chris Creamcobat, what of Tookie's father? Nah, eh, I guess no one gives a shit. Lizzie, Tookie's cutter friend who played a big role in the beginning and then made a cameo just a scant few pages before? Well, we have time to look over the horizon or something and think, wherever she is, I hope she's alright. Not really an action or a genuine wish, it seems. I mean, God forbid you do something. She's a couple miles away and your new friend CL can teleport. But I guess it's the thought that counts? our narrator, leaves us with a girl power message. Just watch Spice World. Tookie will continue her studies in model land and signs off using her T-mail jail, where she also manages to squeeze in a four-page soliloquy about how you can do it and go get yours, girlfriend. And then we have the acknowledgments, 14 pages of them. Tyra thanks every place where she wrote. It turns out that Modeland was the product of fancy hotel lobbies, resorts, and cafes. A trip to Morocco really helped her get down the architecture of something or other. And while in Morocco, Tyra read from Modeland for half an hour to Berber children who spoke no English. Her theory being that if she could hold their attention, the book had a good chance at success. I'm having a hard time describing how monumentally stupid that is reading to a bunch of kids in a language they don't know. But I guess as a native English speaker, it still doesn't make any fucking sense. You know, my brother spent two years in the Peace Corps in Morocco, and one of their favorite movie stars is Jean-Claude Van Damme. I don't know how these pieces fit, but they totally do. Tyra also thanks the librarians who let her work in the library. Well, you're welcome. And now some of the true criminals. There was an agent involved... There was also a separate book agent who encouraged Tyra to come up with a term better than supermodel, which is how we got Intoxabella and perhaps catalyzed this whole thing where everything had a dumb name. Thanks, asshole. And finally, an editor. Yes, there was an editor who took a hot mess of 1,000 pages and turned it into a hot mess of 550 pages. I tried to find a picture of this editor pre- and post Land, figuring she'd be like the president pre- and post-office having aged 20 years and 4, but alas, no dice. And that's that. Unsolved Mysteries Q Robert Stack and the Scariest Music Ever I wanted to take a moment and briefly list the loose ends I found when I went back through this review. This is by no means exhaustive, just the stuff that stuck out. It's entirely possible that some of this is answered in the book and I missed it, but I'm 90% sure that 90% of this is unraveled thread that never got wound back up. What happened to the one little girl who survived Shiraz's tragic memory from that psychic lady? The one her whole family got killed except for one little girl? Why have a little girl survive that unless she's coming back later? What was the deal with Tookie's magic corsage that she made on accident that was a portal to a pocket dimension that could contain all matter? How did that happen? Why? And is no one curious about this? What's going on with Theophilus? What's going on with Chris Creamcrobat? What about the entire underground world of Modeland staffers who live beneath the surface and make everything run? I fucking knew that wouldn't come back, but god damn it, what about them? Why did Tookie wake up from surgery in the M building? Who put her there and why? Where's Hunchy, the hunchback who is journeying through the diabolical divide to eat a girl's liver? I don't think we saw him die. I kept expecting him to show up. Why was the belladonna hiding her face the whole time? Nobody but Creamy knew who she was anyway. Why was Creamy so secretive about her model and past? How are the bestosterone guys selected? We know they have to be good-looking and they have to build shit, but what are the qualifications? How does that work? Where do they live? Why were CL's friends dead in the Diabolical Divide? They were also happy living together, then they just vanished, and then later she found their corpses in the Divide? Why? Last Caress Because I feel like there are just a few more things to cover, I'd like to hit the FAQ on Model Land and really finish this off. By finish this off, I mean finish this off like I would talk about masturbating a horse that really does not want to be masturbated. It's a fight. Question, do you really think Tyra wrote this herself? Answer, I do, 100%. A lot of people have asked me this question, and with good reason. I'm sure many a celebrity teen book has been ghostwritten. Snooki admitted to having a co-author, as did Nicole Richie, or at least Nicole Richie's publisher did. Hilary Duff said that she came up with the general plot of her story, and it didn't even occur to her to credit the person who, you know, made an idea into words. The person who did, you know, the writing. Which is insane and infuriating, because fuck me, doesn't everyone have an idea for a book? Isn't the writing part the thing that means not everyone has a book to his or her name? Young, hot female stars definitely jumped into the publishing game, so it wouldn't be a huge soccer to see that Tyra had done the same, slapping her name on a pile of ideas. But if you look up reviews by people who have read Model Land, they seem to universally agree there is no way this was ghostwritten. Why? Because it's too fucking crazy. If you were a ghostwriter and you turned in this 550 pages of balls-out crazy, you would be fired. Correctly. If you brought this to your boss and she fired you, she would be right to do so. How can you drag Tyra through the mud like this? We're trying to create a good relationship with celebrities, sex tape creators, people who take cleavagey pics on Instagram, Disney stars who are turning into whatever it is Disney stars become when they're not kids anymore and seem a little desperate. You can't give us this blibble-blabble. And I'm concerned for your mental health, frankly. If someone were ghostwriting this, it would be half as long, it would make a lot more sense, and it would not have been so hard to get through in just under a year. I fully believe Tyra wrote every word of this thing. Question, do you think Tyra was on drugs? A. Answer. Honestly, no. Question, how did this get published? Answer. Well, that's pretty easy to understand. At the time of this publication, we were at the confluence of a few things the boom in female celebrities writing semi-fictional teen lit, teen lit hitting it big in general, and the multi-part series being a primary economic force in book sales. Model was just after the ends of Twilight, Hunger Games, and Harry Potter. Basically, it looks to me like Tyra signed a book contract, seeming to be the perfect combination of celebrity with ability to promote, create, and who might have an interesting story. It's a sad state of affairs. I heard an interview with a major publisher who said they're economically required to publish memoir after memoir by a former wife of Hugh Hefner because that shit sells, and if they sell enough, they can publish things they like. But for every good book, there's got to be a Tory spelling joint to fund the industry. Economically, it made a lot of sense. On paper, at least. I don't think anyone could have predicted this, but I would also say that it was pretty clear early on what a bomb they had on their hands. No paperback release. No foreign language release that I found. Question. Okay, but how did no one edit this thing? Answer. Honestly, when this came in at 1,000 pages, I'm guessing whoever edited it just threw their hands up and said, I'm going to edit copy and make it semi-coherent. I'm not going to make it perfect. Serenity now. It's like that fireman who had his face burned off. His replacement face doesn't look great, but it's a tiny step up from what he was working with before, baby steps, and you have to accept it'll never pass for normal. How do you think Tyra feels about it? I think she's proud as hell. I listened to a recorded Google Hangout, and she made a lot, made with a lot of excitement. Honestly, she was very nice to everyone, and I felt a little bad, but then she was explaining how Tookie was her at 15, and CL was her now, and it all made sense. Why the end of the book is all about CL, a character we don't really care about and haven't followed all that closely. Well, all the people are Tyra, so it doesn't matter which cipher we focus on here and there, it's all Tyra. Based on the writing, and this is harsh, but my honest assessment, I think this is written by someone who hasn't been told no in a writing setting ever. I think she was working in a very supportive environment, which can be good, but wasn't what she needed. Where's Model Part 2 and Part 3 for that matter? I don't think they're happening. My theory on this is that Model Land sold enough to justify its existence, but not a whole lot more than that. I don't think there are enough folks clamoring for more. This never got hardcore movie buzz. It hasn't found a place with the Hunger Games and Harold Porter books. It would seem, from my admittedly limited POV, that the shining light of teen lit trilogies is fading a bit. I think we all got wise to the decompressed storytelling that allowed for three sales of hardcovers when the story warranted one. Or less. And it would also be my guess that after turning in this hell beast of a manuscript, a publisher might be willing to let Tyra out of her contract based on the work provided. What's Model Land's future? Honestly, I don't know. This could become something of a cult classic. I've read some Bizarro, and this shit is weirder simply because it's not categorized as Bizarro. It's a teen girl empowerment book, but with some fucked up weird shit that doesn't even work. It's very much the Birdemic, the fateful findings, the room of books. I think the length and the fact that it's a book, not a movie, really holds it back, though. It's hard to enjoy the ride that long. A roller coaster is fun when it's crazy and makes unexpected moves, but not for 40 hours in a row. What's your final judgment? The true tragedy is that there is a good book in here somewhere. It's buried under miles of leechate, Leachate? The garbage juice, (laughs) but it's in there. There really is something to the idea of expressing how crazy it is to become a globe-hopping model at the age of 15, how nothing makes sense, how the people you encounter seem wild and strange. There's something to ratcheting that up and making it a novel, but it didn't happen. Modeland didn't get there, and I think that for me, it just plain needed more coherence for me to even recommend it as something that can be enjoyed at all, period. What will you read next? I don't know. Another challenge book will be in the works. I need to find something great, so if you have suggestions, comment away. I've already read License to Love, which was fucking awful and great, and Redeeming Love, which which was vile. I've read some hilarious Kindle porn, and Agent Coldbeer, which is probably the best worst self-published thing I've ever experienced. So what's the next Model Land? You tell me. There you go, we did it. That's Model Land. Um, what's, what's left to say about it other than fuck you, it's model land, right? All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.